0: They were looking at it as I walked up here. I brought me the building block Legos. Well, interesting thing about building block Legos is I found that, I mean, these things are great for all ages. I mean, kids love them, but I mean, look, you can take these building block Legos, and you can make all kinds of sort of things. You put them together. That one don't go there though. You can just make different things, and before you know it, I can't build them hardly at all. One of these kids going to to come up here and help me. But when I was, I've used these for my grandkids before, making different things. And a lot of times, I like to make Hank. I thought maybe James would come up here and help me. So you can make like a toy machine gun, right? Or you can make houses, and you can make. Well, you can also make towers out of it. I mean, they're just fun to use when they go together, right? So you know, you got to have a little bit more intelligence maybe than I have. But building Blake Legos are fun for most people. And so I got thinking about that last week, or week before last, because the message prepared the week before last, that building block block Legos are kind of cool. You can build things with them, and you can kind of go taller and taller when they fit together, right? Before you know it, you can build a tower, whatever that tower may look like. But when I was a kid, I, I like to play with them now, like I show you here when I can connect them right, and I really don't play with them much at all. But when I was a kid, we didn't have building block Legos. We didn't have such a thing. But what we have when I was a kid was a thing called an erector set. See, here's an erector set. How many of you had the erector set when you were younger? I see some people raising their hands, some people shaking their head. No. But an erector set, in case you didn't have one or didn't know, it's like a, a metal toy construction set. And when you open that box, it has like various metal beams of different kind of lengths, and you can put them together because they get regularly spaced holes. You can space everything together and tighten it down with the nuts and bolts that come in it. And a vent set would even have some pulleys and gears, wheels and levers. I mean, it was great. An erector set was something the kids used before building blocks. Now, maybe the best illustration of an erector set ever was in the movie Sandlot. Have you ever seen the movie Sandlot? then you know that it's about, you know, a group of kids that play baseball throughout the entire summer at a vacant sandlot. And as these boys then start playing baseball, one boy hits a home run, goes into the neighbor's yard over the fence, and the neighbor happens to have this big, man-eating, ferocious dog. And as he has this big dog and the dog grabs the ball, the kids now are afraid to climb over the fence and go get the ball because the dog may eat them alive, right? So they come up with a plan to use all kinds of different maybe ideas to how they can get the ball back into their possession so they can go back to the sandlot and play more baseball. So one of the ways in which they make a plan to get the baseball back is with the erector set. You see, all the boys go in to get their erector sets and bring all the pieces together, and they construct this really large crane. It's perfect. It's great. It's the perfect thing for an erector set. The plan was to let the crane have its, to be able to go over the fence, lower its boom, scoop up the ball, bring it back up, and then go play in baseball again. It was a great plan, but it kind of failed when the dog grabbed the erector set, the scoop of it, and pulled it down, and they didn't get the ball back. But nonetheless, it was a great plan by using the erector set. They didn't have the building blocks. They used an erector set. So maybe you're wondering, okay... What does the building blocks or an erector set have anything to do with what we're going to talk about today? And it connects because today we're going to look into the account in Genesis chapter 11 with the people that decide to build a tower to reach God. Maybe we call it the world's first skyscraper. So today we turn to Genesis chapter 11. Not by using brick, not by using a director set, or by building a building box, but rather bricks that we use to maybe create a tower. So stand with me as we look into Genesis chapter eleven, verses one through nine is our text today, and I always call this Babel, not Babel. Some pre- some people call it Babel. It's a tower. Of Babel is the way I pronounce it. So here is the reading in Genesis chapter eleven, verses one through nine. It says, "Now the whore." had one language and the same words. As the people migrated from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and tower, which the children of man have built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible, impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building, left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Father, Lord, we thank you today for how we can gather again, Lord. We thank you earlier. Let us not take it for granted and be thankful again, Lord, for how we can gather here today. Let's receive the message you have for us, Lord, account that was written many years ago in the book of Genesis. It can still be something that complied to our lives today, so we invite your spirit now to lead and guide and to direct us into receiving your message you have for us here today. Again, we're thankful for all your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the commentaries I was looking at last week called uh, Opening the Bible by Kurt Strossner. He describes the text in this particular way. He said, the account of the Tower of Babel, what we read in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, is one of the saddest and most momentous stories in the Bible. Sad because of the rebellion it depicts. Momentous because of the world cultures that it spawned. And I use Stouffer's comment because it puts us really in the right perspective when we read this account in Genesis chapter 11, perhaps one we've heard before, it puts us into our perspective when it comes to building this tower, as beautiful may have been and as wonderful it may have been, it puts us in our perspective that we really want to rebellion. And we return to the text to begin to dissect. We see that, first of all, and we go back to the text to building a the tower, there's nothing inherently wrong. We talk about it being rebellion, and we'll talk about disobedience. There's nothing really inherently wrong with building a tower. As I said earlier, if you can put Legos together, you can build a tower as high as you want it to be before it falls over. I mean, there's nothing really wrong then the building a tower. In fact, it probably seemed like a great idea at the time. And it probably was something momentous and beautiful and an architectural beauty. And it's interesting then to note, as we kind of think about that, how in verse 3, they tell us then that the people had our advance to the technology of how they could build better and stronger bricks. It says they used bitumen, which is a black, sticky substance. Some actually say they took slime and mortar, but they oven-baked these bricks to make them stronger for their construction, which resulted then in a sturdier, more scalable brick than simple bricks just placed upon another. I mean, I've always marveled at how back then they could take anything and make something bigger and better from it without using modern-day tools. I can barely build something nowadays with using tools in my garage. But they take things that marvels my mind about how they could get that to be bigger and better. But because then the bricks that they were making and of their ability to produce them, the people said, like we talked about earlier, thought it was a great idea to build a tower for their city. And at first, I'm sure it probably felt like a great idea. That to build a tower. Because people just seem to marvel. When you build a tower, when you have skyscrapers, people just seem to marvel at those kind of things. And I mean, if you stop and think about it, perhaps we've done it ourselves before. If you ever went to St. Louis, have you ever seen the arch in St. Louis? Architectural beauty. People go to the top, they feel it sway and back and forth just a little bit. And when you get up there, it's kind of remarkable how it stands. I know some people don't want to go to the top at all. They don't like to feel that sway back and forth. But you stand on the ground looking up at it, it's amazing to see that. We marvel at how that thing was created, how that was done. And we seem to do that. We go in any kind of city away from the suburbs where we live, you know, the little towns. We go into the bigger cities, we see these tall buildings, and we marvel at the way they're constructed in their height. In Chicago, there's something called the Old Sears Tower, now called, I think, the Willis Tower. You know how tall it stands? 1,729 feet. That's incredible. That's over 110 stories high. That's in Chicago. But if you don't want to go to Chicago, you could go to New York City, see, same, same kind of thing. And Empire State Building in New York City stands 1,250 feet. Remarkable. But that's not near as high as the new One World Trade Center. It's an impressive 1,000 700, 776 square feet, not square feet, 1,776 feet tall. Now, the World Trade Center, as we know, was destroyed many years ago, 9-11. So in 2006, they began to recreate and rebuild everything, and they made this uh, world tra- uh, One World Trade Center, complete in 2014. It's actually now the, one of the tallest buildings in the Western Hemisphere. It's incredible. One thousand seven hundred and seventy-six feet tall. We marvel, I do at least, when somebody has a tower or a building that built. I marvel at how it was done. So again, the question is, what's wrong about building a tower? Then, I mean, in the text that was bringing people together, which even that seems like a good thing. When you do something to bring people together, that itself seems like a great thing as well. So the question, what really could have been wrong then with bringing all the people together and what's wrong with building a tower? It was the disobedience. It was the fact that they were being rebellious. What was so wrong with building a tower, bringing everybody together is the fact they were then being disobedient. And as I spell it out in the text, so we have to go back a little bit to understand that. And we go all the way back then to Noah and with the flood. We're not going to backtrack all of that there, but I do want to recap for you briefly that in the account for the flood, which is Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, after the flood then, which by the way, Noah and his family is the only one who survived the flood, right? After the flood, God gave a very specific command, very specific command, that it appears twice in chapter 9, in verse 1 and in verse 7 of the ninth chapter. Again, reputation shows that God was serious about how he should follow the command. So what was the command he gave to Noah and his family? It seemed rather simple. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was verse 1. Verse 7, written a little differently but subtly, saying the same thing. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. To me, that's not an overly complicated command. And one that seems relatively easy to understand and to follow, but what happens? What does man do? We we'll go back to verses 1 and 2. The whole earth had one language, the same words. People migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. That's what they did. For clarification, Shinar is actually Babylon, but look at the end of verse 2 because there's the key. They settled there. Essentially, they hunker down in one spot. So what's wrong with hunkering down in one spot? Well, they were just told in chapter 9 twice in verse 1 and verse 7 to fill the earth, to populate the earth abundantly, which means that unless you spread out, instead of hunkering down, you're not really fulfilling the command. I mean, unless I'm missing something, you can't spread out when you settle down in one spot and you hunker down there. So it's really outright disobedience. They're being disobedient to the command given to the forefathers of Noah. So what it tells us then really is our first point. The point is this then, that disobedience will always result in discipline. Kind of what Sheila just told the children. Disobedience always results in discipline. It always will. And think about it. Every time you find disobedience in the Bible, there is discipline right after that. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's an account of Nadab and Abihu who bring this strange, profane fire before the Lord. They've been told not to do that. It results in discipline. For them, the discipline was pretty severe. You know what happened to Nadab and Abihu? They died because they brought strange, profane fire before the Lord. They were commanded not to. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're actually going through this in our Bible study time with the students, when Saul's commanded to destroy the Amalekites, do not spare them was the command, right? Right, Micah, Grace, Paige, Jackson, Isaac. Do not spare them. Four words he was told. Saul, Samuel was told, Samuel told Saul, four words. Do not spare anything with the Amalekites. The king, the men, women, ox, sheep, destroy them. Utter destruction. What does Samuel do? Saul, what Saul do? Saul spares the king, Agag, and some of the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen. Samuel comes along and hears the bleeding in the background, asks Saul about it, and Saul makes up some sort of excuse, and Samuel then tells Saul, look, dude, you've lost favor inside of God. You're no longer going to be the king. Resulted in discipline. The book of Jonah. When Jonah was called by the Lord to go preach to the Ninevites, and he rebelled and ran, what happened to Jonah? He got swallowed up by a fish. He reconsidered when he got regurgitated, and then he went and preached to the Ninevites. In Acts chapter 5, it's not just Old Testament, New Testament. Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira sold a large portion of the property and had a, a large amount of money. They saved back a portion for themselves. Paul asked him about it, or Peter asked him about it. They denied it. Ultimately, it led to Ananias and Sapphira's death and discipline. What that tells us, multiple instances in the Bible where it talks about how discipline will occur. So it is quite clear. The Bible is abundantly clear that disobedience results in chastening and discipline from the Lord. And obviously, then no one really likes to be disciplined. I mean, raise your hand if you really like to be disciplined as a child, there's some children already in here. Raise your hand if you like to be disciplined. Kayla, I know that's a lie. You're just raising your hand to be rebellious now. You'll be grounded later. No more racing for Kayla. See, that's worse than taking her cell phone from her. But disobedience always results in discipline. And, and like she told the children in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 11: For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, point pretty simple: Dis- disobedience always results in discipline. So, then as we go back to the story and the text here in Genesis chapter 11, then the Lord notices then that disobedience to the people. I mean, they were told to scatter abroad and to be fruitful and multiply. They're all settling down, building the tower, and, uh, and really get closer to God. The people then listened. Essentially, the people had done what seemed convenient instead of what was commanded. Let me say that again. The people had decided to do what seemed convenient rather than what was commanded. If I think about that, say, in a couple of different times, beginning to register, in my mind, it, it probably seemed pretty wise at that particular time to congregate together. I mean, when we're, we're more together, we're actually stronger. I mean, we're not as, as weak against our enemies. So it probably seemed like a right thing to do, maybe, to hunker down and gather together in one large metropolis, rather than maybe to be scattered abroad and dispersed over the face of the earth. The only problem with that was, the Lord had told them to scatter abroad. So essentially, they ignored God's clear instructions in favor of their own wisdom. Let me say that again. The people essentially then ignored God's clear instructions, the command, in favor of their own wisdom. Now, don't we also do that? Don't we at times just ignore command and go against what we think God wants us to do or command us to do against our own and and think that we're we're wiser than God. I mean we get ourselves caught up in wanting to do it our own way a lot of times. I mean I look around everybody and I see I see a lot of wise people in this room. Okay? Sometimes you can tell the wisest people by the gray hair. I'm starting to turn a little gray. I'm starting to gain some wisdom But wise, I see wise people, we're, we're not stupid people. So, I mean, but at times then in our lives, we, we gather and we think that, well, we know more than God because of our wisdom, because of our experiences. But when we begin to think that we know more than God or that we could be possibly wiser than God, well, then that's sinful. That's just outright disobedience, outright sin. So now then, with going back to the story and making sure we understand that, the sin of those now of erecting the tower in Babel was that God had commanded people to spread out, to be fruitful, to multiply, to populate. But they chose not to, and then consequently sin, thinking that maybe they were more wise than God. But God deals with all sin. And the point is disobedience will always result in discipline. But to notice what happens next in the text, we go back to verse 4. Again, they said, let us build ourselves a city, a tower to reach up to the heavens. They said, lest we make a name for ourselves, let us do that, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In verse 4, we come back to it now as we make our first point because a couple of things now come up for consideration and maybe for explanation. The first is recognize they want to make a name for themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, we're going to come back to that one in just a moment. But notice also they use the phrase, lest we be dispersed and scattered. Now, I'm thinking, I'm reading this and thinking, why would they say, let us do this, lest we be dispersed and scattered? When they say, lest we be dispersed and scattered, I'm thinking in my mind, they knew what the command was then. I mean, they're fully aware of what they should have been doing, lest we spread about. They knew what the command was. So it reveals then that their heart was set on being disobedient and exercise in their own wisdom, which then reveals a second point of application, that out of the heart of man comes deceit, rebellion, and wickedness. We may not like to admit that, but Jeremiah had said in 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Mark had written his gospel in chapter 7, for from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. Because all these evil things come from within and defile the man. It's an amazing thing to think about that our heart can be so wicked, so deceitful, so cruel and evil. But from the verses of Jeremiah and from Mark, we find that from the heart comes wickedness. From the heart comes the desire to disobey. Now, if you have trouble accepting that, then think of it this way. A two-year-old child, I remember when Jasper was two years old. He spent the night at the house last night. He's what, six or seven now, I guess, going into the first grade. But when he was two years old, I have He moved to Indiana, and he was living with us for a while, and I remember watching him. And when a two-year-old child, I mean, basically, a two-year-old child is unaware of the enemy. I mean, they're aware of the prowling around of our enemy looking for his next victim to devour. They're not aware of that. I mean, we know it, but they're not aware. So when a two-year-old child is not aware of the evil one, but still has a desire to outright disobey and to act up, where does that come from? I mean, when Jasper rebels against what mom and dad told him to do, that's coming straight from the heart. Because inherently in the heart we have inside of us the desire to disobey, or to do wicked, or to do evil. Which is what it tells in Jeremiah and in Mark. So in the text in verse 4, we see then their desire to disobey, to not really do evil necessarily, but to maybe rebellious. Where they wanted to reach up to the heavens, which Maybe there's nothing wrong with wanting to reach up to the heavens, but notice how they're wanting to make a name for themselves. Well, now we come back to that and elaborate a little bit about what it means to make themselves a name. Well, notice that it means this then, that their chief goal has shifted from glorifying God and enjoying him forever to promoting their own renown, their own fame, their own glory. In essence, they're all about themselves. They're wanting to make a name for themselves, which means it's all about them. I think about that, and I ask myself, well, do I ever do that? Do I ever try to make a name for myself? I mean, I look at the modern-day culture and society, and I think, well, that's really the motto of the world, of our age, to make a name for yourself. I mean, ultimately, it's maybe why we wear what we wear, why we drive what we drive, or even why pastors who are guilty of it want better and bigger churches all the time, or even why the Pharisees in the Bible was always wanting someone to see them do their religious deeds, to be noticed by others. It was self-promotion, and self-promotion is simply the air we breathe in our Western world. So having said that, then it means that we constantly need to be asking ourselves, why am I doing this? Why am I purchasing this item? Why am I seeking this promotion? Why am I performing this particular service? Is it so I might feel better about myself? Is it so I can attract attention to myself? Is it that I can live more comfortably with myself? Or am I actually doing it for the glory of God? Because if we're honest, at times we do things similarly to the people that's building the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves or to make a name for ourselves. I once worked with the man who told me that if his mother came to work for him and did something and he had to fire her, he would actually do it to make a name for himself. It's amazing but pure and simple, when we begin to analyze and begin to self-reflect, we do things at times, perhaps, because of our pride, to make a name for ourselves, to similarly what maybe it was for the people who chose to be disobedient in building this tower. I mean, to reach God, to make a name for themselves. But then go back to the text and look at what happens to their efforts. People find out God does not desire for them to build a tower to him. He comes down and confuses their language forcing them to scatter abroad as he commanded. Verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are, only, they are one people. They have one language. This is the only beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do would now be impossible for them. So he says in verse 7, we'll expand in a moment. Come, let us go down, and they're confused in language, so they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth, they left off building the city, didn't finish it. It's called the Tower of Babel because the Lord confused the language over the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. A couple of things to note and or expand upon in that latter part of the account. First, verse 7, instead we come back to it, elaborate a little bit. Let us go down. The question always comes up, who is us? And similar to the wording then found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where he said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Notice the plurality there. It's like it's multiple people. It's like reminding us that the Father and the Son are one and have always existed. Like John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or like Paul had written in Colossians 1, 16, For by him... All things were created in heaven and on the earth. At the very end, you see all things are created through him and for him. So we may not ultimately understand it, may not even be able to explain it. But when it says us, it's referring to God in his three forms, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So that's the first thing to explain. The second then, is notice this. The humor kind of introduced in this text. Notice while the people tried to go up to reach the heavens and ultimately failed, God humorously then observed their attempt and goes down, thereby also letting the people know that God sees all, looks upon all, knows all, and is completely sovereign. Warren Worsby adds, God in heaven is never perplexed or paralyzed by what people do on earth. Babel's conceded, "Let's go up," was answered by heaven's calm, "Let's go down." He quotes Psalms chapter two, verse four: "He who sits in the heavens shall laugh; the Lord shall hold him in derision." Little humor introduced in the text. When they think they can go up, God sees it, stops it, and He comes down. Notice thirdly, then, the word Babel. I say Babel. Some say Babel. I like Babel because it always and forever. Related to confusion. I mean, it's a funny play on words of how people tend to babble. You may think, well, dude, right now you're babbling. But the people do. They go on and on and on. It's like gibberish or gobbledygook. They just go on about different things. But notice this. Remember this, that God is not associated with confusion and chaos. But always orderly and always in control. Something we said in our very first message as we got to gleaning some Genesis. This account reminds us once again that God is always in control. And finally, notice something else in that particular text. The fourth thing. The irony that ultimately plays out in the account. The people have wanted to make a name for themselves, and now they can't even pronounce one another's names. He changed their language. They had wanted to ensure they would not be scattered over the whole face of the earth, and now he confuses their language and he scatters them about. It ultimately ends up happening even though they didn't want it to, which is a reminder then for all of us that God is opposed to the proud and will often make the punishment of our arrogance a direct reversal of our prideful intentions. I mean, ultimately the count shows how much God is in control and how the people should learn a valuable lesson. and reveals then our last point. There is only one God, and we ain't it. We are not it. Even though sometimes people like us may think that we look like a God or can be a God, in fact, Muslim teach you even tell you you can be a God. We ain't ever gonna be God. I always found it interesting in the movie Bruce Almighty that Morgan Freeman, who plays God, allows Bruce, who's played by Jim Carrey, to become. Him. I mean, he allows Jim Carrey, Bruce, to be God for a short period of time. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know pretty quickly that it's more than Bruce Jim Carrey can handle. He can't handle being God. He gets everything all messed up. He just grants, he gets on the computer and grants everybody's wishes. And it's complete chaos. You have like 100 million people winning the lottery, which means absolutely nothing. You get like a dollar and a half. 100 million people in the lottery you get nothing but it's confusing it's chaos he can't handle being god people could not handle being god the people here at babel could not handle being god the world today cannot handle being god they think they know as much as god as wise as god but we're never as wise as god at times maybe even we are guilty the things that we can solve more problems do more if we're ever going to be God on a particular day. But that's hogwash. I mean, God is so many years in front of us, it's incredible. His knowledge is so much more than ours. It's, we can't even begin to comprehend his ways, which is the essence of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Job. Job had a horrible life at one point. I mean, he, he had all these riches and all the things going for him in the very beginning of the book of Job. But then everything horrible happens to Job, and when, when everything horrible happens, he's left with his three friends and his wife, who seems to be no help to him at all. And in the time that they're with him, he begins to question God. And as he begins to question God, God ultimately, in chapters 38 and 39, puts Job in his place. Listen to the sampling of how God responds to Job when Job began to question God in his wisdom. In verse 38, verse four, chapter 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said this, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking to Job. So Who do you think you are? He said, Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Then he gets with him. Verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. Verse 5, Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid this cornerstone? Verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth an issue from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, in thick darkness its swollen band, when I fixed my limit forth? Verse 11, when I said, this far you may come, but no further. God puts Job in the right place. Let Job know pretty quickly, look, it's me, dude. It's not you. You're not God. You ain't ever going to be God. I'm more wise. I'm more knowledgeable. Man may think they can be like God or act like a God or want to be a God, but it isn't ever going to happen. There's only one God, and we ain't it. God is God and always will be. He is the creator. He is the beginning and the end. At times in life, we may want to be like God, but we will never be God. But then maybe that's a part of the account that we need to make sure we understand, because the people were surely just wanting to get closer to God. They were wanting to know God. They were wanting to desire to be or to be to know God better, and that's great. We should always want to know God and to know Him better. But here's the good news: then we can. Be close to God. And we can know more about God. But it's not by building a tower. It's not by living the life full of pride. It's not by thinking that we can become knowledgeable as God. Or it can even be possible as wise as God. The only way we can really know God is through his son. Jesus proclaimed in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. The early descendants of Noah, from chapter 6 through 9 into chapter 11, we see today, they thought they could possibly know God better or more by building a tower, by reaching him. But we know that the only way to reach God is through his son. So it's a good thing to want to know God, just not the way they were going about. So to get to know God today, which we all need to do, is first by accepting His Son, Jesus, as Lord, Father. Lord, we thank You for a reading of an account that was written many years ago and how it can point us to modern-day application and for how it reveals us ultimately that as the people wanted to come closer to You and to know You, that we can as well. But it's not by modern technique. It's not by modern day way of thinking is only lord as we recognize today to come closer to you by accepting your son as lord so today lord i pray that for all of us ever come back to church today lord after missing the week i pray that all of us would want to get to know you more become closer to you and the first step to coming closer to you lord desiring to be with you is to simply accept your son jesus so lord i pray over the church here today i pray for anybody listening later Anybody has never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They would do so today to get to know you, Lord, and desire to know truly who you are. I thank you, Lord, for how you give us this chance to know you better, how you give us your word to receive, to study, and to know you. I thank you always for giving us your son, who can truly know you. In your name we pray. Amen.